Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to my headshot photography podcast. And also this is going to be basically put on YouTube. So I'm super excited today because my guest is one of my very, very, well, photographers who inspires me for many, many years. And I'm super excited because um, I'm going to be able to talk to Joe personally and we're going to explore photography and we're going to explore many different topics. Welcome, Joe, to the podcast. Um, I'm super excited to talk to you. I'm sure we're going to have an amazing chat. And um, yeah, thank you for accepting my invitation because we've been planning this for a little bit and finally I'm able to talk to you personally. And also I want to say that we never had a chance to talk to each other. Like again, I've been watching and 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 following your work and following your videos, following your teaching for many many years. So at some point, I'm like, I, I have to ask if he would be interested to talk to me. Um, you respond very quickly and say yes, and that makes me super happy. So welcome. Well, Rafael, thank you for having me. The honor is mine. Believe me. Thank you so much. So I have a bunch of, I would say, interesting questions. I want to dive in into your world because, as I said, um, (laughs) you are very, very um, known and also one of those photographers who not only shoot, but also you teach a lot. And you really particular about um, your teachings. You, 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 like... I think when I whenever I watch your videos, like you know everything, and then you're just getting inspired. You get all this knowledge, um, and then you're just ready to go, and you basically have all the informations which you need to you know get your photography to another level. So I want to kind of start a little bit about well history of you how did you get into photography like when did you start it um how this whole thing evolved over the years because like the last i think that the 10 20 years it's just a massive changes so if you could because i tried to dig a little bit some information about you but um there is you know i'm I'm sure some of these parts are hidden so i just want to kind of get a little bit more into some details my start uh true story it was to Piss off my parents. Okay. That was my start. Uh, I was an only child, so yes, I was a little spoiled. Okay. Uh, I was 11 years old, and for a few years, I had had a deal with my parents for like Christmas and birthdays. Instead of getting a bunch of toys, because I was outgrowing toys, I could pick out like one big gift for either Christmas or the birthday. Like one year, I got a record player for my bedroom, that kind of thing. Okay. So I had a budget of a hundred bucks, which, you know, back then that was a lot of money. Again, I was a little spoiled, but Christmas catalogs came the year that I was 11 years old. And I had always been fascinated by my parents' Super 8 millimeter movie camera. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't let me touch it at all. So I was going through the Christmas catalog and I flipped past the toys and I get to the back where the cool stuff is. And the movie cameras were still out of my price range. Mm -hmm. But there was a 35-millimeter camera. It was a German camera, a Hanamex Praktika Nova 1B. It was $75. So I was, like, super excited. Rushed to my mother, showed her the page in the catalog, says, here it is, this is what I want this year. She didn't even hesitate. No was the answer. That was it. Mm -hmm. End of conversation. And, of course, I was like, wait, you can't change the rules. What's the deal? This Mm -hmm. is, like, within the price limit. Like, no, she wouldn't wouldn't even entertain it. 
So I went to my father. I thought, okay, he'll buy in. Same thing, no dice. My father at least explained like, look, you know, you don't just buy a camera because then you got to get all this other stuff and it's going to cost a whole lot more money and you don't have that kind of money. And I might have mentioned I was an only child and a little spoiled. So, you know, I pretty much threw a temper tantrum over the whole thing. And finally, my father said, listen, you've been saving to buy a motor scooter. You have money in the bank. If you really want this, go buy it with your own money. Mm-hmm. So the next day, I went to the bank with my little passbook like we used to have for the savings account. I took my money out and walked into a camera store and bought my first camera. And I was hooked. I mean, I was hooked right out of the box. Um, and I had my first picture published just by chance when I was 14. Wow. And then I was even more hooked. And I've done a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. In photography, I started out as a newspaper photographer. Okay. I was determined that I was going to win a Pulitzer by the time I was 25. Of course, the harsh reality is, is you don't really get to decide when you're going to win a Pulitzer. So yeah. uh realized that was maybe not going to happen and eventually kind of outgrew the newspaper business and mm-hmm. uh, got into weddings and portraits and started okay. a wedding and portrait business. Failed miserably. Had no clue how to run a business. And... Mm-hmm through the empathy of a loan officer at my local bank who spent time with me and taught me how to do accounting, how to set prices, and how to do all those things, turned it into a very successful portrait and wedding business. Okay. And from there, evolved into doing commercial advertising and some product work. Um, For several years, I handled national food accounts, photographing food. Chicken was my specialty. Okay. And... uh, (laughs) After that, uh, morphed into doing some fashion work because mm-hmm. of an acquaintance that I met at um, what would have been a social media event now, but back then it was a chamber of commerce, you know, social event for networking. Um, started doing fashion work, and so I still don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up, mm-hmm. but it will have a camera involved for sure. Okay. Um, that really, for me, it's it's the creative process. That's where the joy is. That's where mm-hmm. the pleasure is. So but, can I ask you how long you've been in this industry? Well, and starting no. from like, well, the child, right? And and before I jump into this, um, I just want to tell yep. you, this is actually really, really interesting. Because my dad's first camera was Practica as well. And, ah, cool. and, and you know what? The same kind of scenario. Um, my dad, he bought the camera, but he basically kept this camera hidden all the time and I was not allowed to touch it and I was not allowed to use it. He, you know, only pull it up when yep. uh, pretty much there's special occasions. And what was yep. funny that I, I got so kind of um, inspired by this that I couldn't have it. Like I, I kind of grow up with this feeling. I, I need to get, the, you know, my hands on cameras and I need to get hands on yep. this kind of stuff. And that starva- starvation kind of, well, basically just went for so many years that when I finished school, like I, I want to become a photographer. So that's kind of similar story that, you know, if you can't kind of get reach something, um, yeah. then it kind of gets you more interested in something, right? And, oh, absolutely. And, and the passion yeah, just kind of sure. grows in you first before you even start doing anything. Yep. Yeah, well, for me, it was um, 1971, okay. uh, September. So I'm 50 years and one month since I got my first camera and, um, you know, I was 14. So, um, subtract four years from that. So 46 years. Oh, wow. Um, when I had my first image published and, and that was, I mean, 
the, you know, the 14 year old brain, mm -hmm. uh, I came home from school, picked up the newspaper. And when I looked at the bottom of the paper on the bottom of the front page was a picture that I had taken with my name photo by Joe Edelman. Okay. At the top of the newspaper, if you remember, you know, back in the days when everybody got a newspaper, at the top of the paper, of course, was the masthead. And right underneath the masthead, this was a small town paper, but it said, you know, read by 22,000 people daily. Oh, wow. So the 14-year-old mind is like, 22,000 people <laughs> know that I took that picture, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's so, amazing. You know, that was the beginning of what literally was, which any, anybody that's ever done photojournalism can appreciate it, you know, it was kind of an addiction at first. It's yeah. like, you know, that byline. That, the byline is addictive, right? Big time. Um, it's basically doing something hopefully doing it well and then potentially getting rewarded because it's on the front page or better yet, it's above the fold on the front page and then there's your name, right? Yeah. So it it's kind of, you know, it, it's like a baseball player hitting a home run or a soccer player scoring a goal. It's like that addiction of, you know, getting that win. Yeah. So it was all about the byline, you yeah. know, at, at first. You, fortunately, over time, me kind of outgrow that need for the byline, but it never goes away. It's always exciting no. to see yeah. it. And I think for yeah. us, is something that, whenever we create something new it's like a you know like a you get like a drug hit right like oh my god i've created this. Sure. there's something new and it's getting a, addictive big time i feel that every yep. time when i have like you know i'm shooting some new outside concept and then you're getting some new results and you're getting some effects you're getting something different it, it just mm -hmm. inspires you and just kind of pushes you to the next one, right? Um, Absolutely. So, 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 yeah, and you can live like this for, you know, decades and just keep producing, yeah. keep, keep creating. And then you every time we're doing something new and interesting, you get that, I would say, adrenaline, adrenaline hit or dopamine sure. hit where you're just like, oh, my God, like, you know, I've done this. This is amazing, yep. right? Yeah, it's it's exciting to see what you can do. People people frequently ask me, like, what's what's the coolest picture that you've ever taken? And that's where my tagline, your best shot is your next shot, comes from. Because yes. the coolest picture I've ever taken hasn't happened yet. Yes. You know, I, I, I get bored easy. I can go through any picture I've ever taken, and I can tell you things I wish I would have done different. Yes. It was exciting when I did it. It was an accomplishment at that time. It might have been a big accomplishment for me in terms of, you know, what I was able to do or had never done before. But I'm not willing to settle for that yes. I, I for me it's it's the excitement of what haven't i created yet what idea yeah. haven't i discovered what concept haven't i put together that is just going to make me go wow yeah and and, and i i feel exactly the same way that each i would say session or each kind of new interesting image gives you a platform for the next one because you like okay sure. i've learned something here now I know where the mistakes were made and what I can do to improve this. Um, also, like um, speaking what you are saying, and this is what, what a lot of people are asking. I like, go, oh, where are you getting your, I would say, like inspiration or where are you getting your ideas? I think the ideas is a process. It's not like, you know, you wake up one day like, oh, I'm going to do this. It's like you've done one thing and then that leads you to another thing and that leads you to another thing. And that's how you start um, growing. But Having said that, I just want to ask you about, um, because I started also like about 20, well, you've been doing this for way longer than me, but I started actually when was kind of end of film era. 
and I still mm -hmm. had my Nikon F100, so I, I was shooting with film. So how, if okay. you could just tell me a little bit about how your transition looked like and how you kind of make you feel when you went from film to digital, because it was probably also a kind of a process for you, right? It was a pretty quick process. Okay. Uh, so I'm, you know, the, the one thing I think that has helped me a lot and still helps me today, even though I'm getting older. Okay. Um, I love change. I love technology. Mm -hmm. I love where it's taking us. I love the opportunities it affords us. So I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, everything was so much better 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Like, I forget <laughs> that. I I'm very excited about what's coming tomorrow. Yes. Right? So for me, um, I had played around briefly with mm -hmm. a little Sony Mavica camera when they first came out. Those are the cameras where we actually put the little floppy disk into them to be able okay. to take pictures. Um, that was, so that was my first experience with, digital. with a digital camera. Uh, and of course they were, you know, really low resolution, horrible quality, yeah, but it was cool. I mean, yeah. you go take some pictures and then you go back and stick the disc in your computer and there's your pictures. Um, Nikon came out with the D1 in, um, two, 2000, I think 2000. Yeah. I shot um, with that camera for, I would say a couple years. Great camera. All yeah. of two and a half megapixels. My yeah. God, how did we survive? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I was shooting weddings light, with yes, that. Yes, it yeah. totally sucked in yeah, the light. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, two and a half megapixels was plenty of resolution. Um, ridiculously expensive. The lenses, yeah, yeah. of course, for it that they came out with initially were crazy expensive. But for me, it just kind of happened to hit at a good time. Business was good. Mm -hmm. I could afford it. So I bought it and literally became addicted immediately i mean the idea of being able to you know shoot stuff see it instantly mm -hmm. um was just absolutely incredible and i did what started out i i, I wish i could say it was a really smart thing mm -hmm. um i got lucky and it turned out to be a really smart thing but i was so ingrained in film obviously having done it for so many years Digital technology comes along. I loved the immediacy of it. I loved Photoshop. I, I had gotten Photoshop when I got the little Sony Mavica. So I was a couple years into Photoshop, mm -hmm. not doing anything really advanced, but kind of knew my way around Photoshop by the time I got the D1. But because I was busy and I was working a lot and didn't have a whole lot of spare time, mm -hmm. I did not understand why they had this stupid raw file format. Now yeah. I say stupid, meaning that was kind of my thought process yeah, at yeah, the yeah. time, right? Well, it, it's yeah. like, I shoot a JPEG, there it is, that's yeah. great. So I'm not exaggerating for the first eight years that I shot digital, mm -hmm. I shot exclusively JPEGs. Yeah, welcome now, to the in club. Hindsight, right, in yeah. hindsight, because I, I teach everyone today, like. Pound my fist on the table, yeah. <laughs> shoot raw, yeah. like hands down. But in a hindsight, it actually helped me make mm -hmm. the transition because what it did is it forced me to continue really, really paying attention to my exposure, to mm -hmm. the nuances in my lighting, all that kind of stuff, which, you know, allowed me to dial things in really, really consistently. So mm -hmm. when I finally took the time, to realize, like, wow, dude, you've been missing out on this raw file for all these years, right? And then, of course, that opened up a whole nother landscape of possibilities. Yeah. Um, the best part of it was is I 
had kind of conquered a, pro conquered a problem that I find so many new photographers have today. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it boggles my mind because we're shooting digital. Mm -hmm. How many images I review from people, whether it be in my mentoring group or in my Facebook group, where people are consistently shooting images underexposed or they're literally running into situations where they're just randomly overexposing, underexposing with kind of no rhyme or reason. Mm -hmm. With digital technology, and especially now with mirrorless cameras with an EVF, where you're seeing yeah. your finished image in the viewfinder, like there is no excuse to be shooting a portrait mm -hmm. and underexposing the whole session or overexposing the whole session. There's like literally no excuse. So for me, I managed to avoid a lot of those kind of digital issues by being a bit ignorant, honestly, and saying, you know what, I don't need this raw file stuff. I don't get the point. And just shooting with JPEG for like mm -hmm. eight years. Um, certainly I missed out on a lot of creative opportunities, you know, mm -hmm. which hindsight is always 2020, but, um, yeah, the, the change for me happened really fast, really quick. Um, I was talking, and in part of that was, um, I watched a lot of photographers struggle with the mm -hmm. change photographers that had been in the business for as long as I had, or even longer for that matter. Um, one of the things that I did, that I think that really helped me once I saw the potential of the D one and saw what it was capable of producing, I got rid of all my film equipment immediately. Mm -hmm. And I did not, you know, a lot of guys, they would hang onto a film camera and then something big would come along and be like, well, you know, ultimately I'm more comfortable with a film camera. So I'm going to go shoot it with a film camera. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the best way to advance your, your abilities is to not be comfortable. I mean, yes. I'm not saying be random and careless. If it's a client job, you've got to deliver on that project. Yes. But um, sometimes it's just best to, to not really be comfortable or, you know, to find other solutions. It mm -hmm. was like, 2007 2008 i had been shooting digital for quite some time i had no film gear i got a call one day from a um, trade publication publisher in chicago mm -hmm. they asked me to put in a quote on what would have been actually a really nice nice job uh doing a cover shot for a trade publication of two guys standing in front of a right aid drugstore they were two executives and then some interior shots of the store for the article we went through the whole phone call. It was about a 30-minute phone conversation. We spec'd out the whole job, put the bid together. Everything's a done deal. We get to the very end of the conversation, and the woman says to me, oh, and by the way, I need this shot on medium format film. I hope that's not a problem. <laughs> okay. And this was like 2007, 2008. I'd been done with film for years. Wow. And it was a really good paying gig. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I, I'm at the point where it's like, we're good to go. I don't want to lose this gig. But at the same time, I was far enough removed from film, I didn't really feel comfortable shooting it on film because my biggest fear was, am I going to nail the exposure? It's mm. been a long time yeah. since I shot on film. So fortunately, I thought quick on my feet. And I just said to her, it's like, that's not a problem. I just need to hire an assistant if I'm going to work on film. She's like, yeah, we can do that. And they had said yes to like everything on the line. Okay. I the budget. So it's like, okay, cool. So the assistant that I hired was a gentleman who had actually been one of my early mentors, was a lifelong friend and photographer. Mm -hmm. He was still shooting film. So basically, I paid him to rent his medium format Mamaya, and his job was load the film, mirror the exposures, 
and hand me the camera. Yeah. <laughs> that was his job. I told him, I was like, I don't even need you to actually help me set lights and add up. I'll yeah. do all that work. Yeah. I'd rather do all that work. I just need you to make sure that I'm getting the proper exposure on this film. Yeah. So basically, yeah, he came out as my assistant with his camera, basically set the camera up and handed it to me. I did my shots and, you know, gave him the camera back. So, yeah, sometimes it's just a matter of, you know, problem yeah. solving. Yeah. For me, uh, you know, like I remember when the, the, the digital was introduced, the biggest factor was like I could shoot without worrying that, you know, I'm going to basically, uh, you have 30, let's say six exposures and then you're done. Because I've shot several weddings right. with film. And I remember during that wedding, I was just like filled up with film. Like I don't want to get, I don't want to run out of it. Um, and then the digital one come up and they like, oh, you have this card and you can just shoot for, let's say, you can have thousand images. Sure. And I'm like, wow, like that's like just a completely, especially I, I started again as a, as a wedding photographer. So that was just a completely breakthrough. But I'll tell you like a little, my funny story when it comes to film, I have my Nikon F100 and the same like you, like I, I like to kind of just move on to new things and stuff. And I remember I said to myself, I have to sell it because within a couple of years, it's going to be worthless, right? Like nobody's going to be buying it because this was so progressing. The digital was progressing so quickly that those prices, and I remember I, I paid fortune for this, you know, camera. And I remember I sold this camera to a guy who was owning like a butcher shop. And he's like, look, I'll pay you half what you ask for and the second half I will give you in sausages and I remember it was so much money I got like 40 kilos of sausage <laughs> and he's like you can keep coming in and you know like as, as soon as you run out of this like you know I had I was like on the kind of tab and whatever I was like done uh -huh. like, okay and I remember I was eating that sausage for I think a year and a half and like <laughs> I remember when I went the last time, I was just like, you know what? I'm done. <laughs> like, I don't want to have this sausage anymore because whenever I just... Yeah, it was kind of a funny story. But again, the same kind of That's scenario. Great. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, the next question what I want to ask you is, so how's your photography evolve over the years? Because you said you've done so many different things and um, you've done weddings, you've done journalism, you've done a lot of, lot of different things. So how I want to ask you how this whole thing evolved over the years, and because now I, I'm guessing you're primarily shooting portraits only, uh, and how that kind of um, this involvement leads you into the portrait photography. Why you ended up shooting portraits? Well, so I the all my business card. The, I guess the best way to answer this: all my business card, part of my logo says I shoot people. Okay. And with the exception of the brief period of time that I did product work and mm -hmm. food and commercial advertising, I have always photographed people in one form or another. And okay. even as a teenager, it was the people aspect that got me hooked on photography. Photography is really cool, mm -hmm. but I was a really shy kid, which nobody believes now, but I was. And it was the access to people that the camera gave me that really kind of solidified everything. Mm -hmm. um, the way my work evolves, um, it, it, it's part just boredom. <laughs> I get bored with what I'm doing. And once I get bored with something, I know better now than when I was younger, but especially at this point, once I get bored with something, that's it. Time to move on. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm, I'm not going to believe the point. It's time to move on. 
Um, I can get bored with something for a lot of reasons. Uh, it might be, it's like, okay, I've mastered it and it's not a challenge and I've kind of run out of interesting things to do with it. It might be realizing I'm actually not that good at it. I've gotten about as far as I can get with it and I'm not going to get that much further. So, okay, you know, and, and the thing of it is, is like, as I evolve, mm-hmm. it's not that I will never go photograph those things again. Um, you know, I, I have a grandson who's big time into baseball. So for the last year and a half, I've been, you know, photographing baseball and he, when he plays and takes me back to when I was in my early 20s shooting sports, when I used to shoot Major League Baseball and Major League Football and all those sports. And I'm having a blast because the first couple games he played at, I sucked. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, wait, so I know all the stuff I've got to do, right? But I got, I got to get my skill set back, right? Mm-hmm. And the cool part is now I've got technology that can help me with that. But at the end of the day, the technology is only going to get me partway there, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's still going to be, you know, really understanding the sport, really thinking through the image. So it was, it was actually a lot of fun, and it's been a lot of fun really kind of relearning that aspect mm-hmm. of photography. Um, the way that I got into the teaching, aside from the fact that the first time I, I taught a workshop, literally I had a, a, a photographer that was doing a program that pretty much like would not take no for an answer. He said, you've got to come teach. My philosophy was kind of like, why would anybody want to listen to me teach? But mm. turned out, I found out I'm fairly good at teaching, and I would even make an argument that I'm potentially a better teacher than I am a photographer at this point. And mm-hmm. I'm proud of that, and I really, really enjoy that. But I wouldn't be able to teach the way that I teach if it wasn't for having all these years of experience. Mm-hmm. So I think the thing that I love now most about my photography right now, and it's, it's a very selfish thing, I'm not going to lie, you know, I spent my whole life working for clients. Mm-hmm. So anybody that's worked for clients understands that, you know, you can have a very distinct style, you can have a very distinct methodology of working, but at the end of the day, you've got to make a client happy. So, you know, part of the key to success in business is finding the right clients and then you get to do what you like to do and the mm-hmm. way you like to do it. But when you don't have the right clients, you're going to be doing a lot of stuff that's not necessarily you, which means you're also probably not going to do it, you know, that well. Mm-hmm. So at this point, for me, where the most fun is, is I shoot what I want, how I want, when I want, and the way that I want, mm-hmm. um, because I'm my client. I am shooting because I want to shoot it. I'm shooting to turn it into uh, a lesson or a YouTube video or for part of a workshop or mm-hmm. those types of things. And that's kind of how my beauty shots and my fashion portraits kind of evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, they're they're... A kind of a genre, a very, very small genre of portraiture that doesn't have a lot of commercial use to it. You're not mm-hmm. seeing those kinds of images in magazines routinely. You're certainly not seeing them in advertising. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the 1980s with glamour shots, so you don't have a lot of people calling up and saying, hey, can I get a picture with a feather boa wrapped around my neck? Yeah. You know, so uh, it's, it is really just about pushing the boundaries of creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, and So where I use that in my teaching Mm -hmm. is to really try, I think more than anything, to try and get photographers to spend less money Mm -hmm. and put much less emphasis on how much gear do I have and how many modifiers and how many really expensive backgrounds and Mm -hmm. all this stuff and realize that you can do so much with so much less. Mm -hmm. And you actually learn more, you actually know more, you come away with a bigger skill set 
Mm-hmm. So uh, I've really, my whole teaching thing even with my photography, it's kind of all about pushing back. Yeah. Um, I, I think the technology we have is incredible, but I also think it's, it's creating a false sense of ability for a lot of photographers. Mm-hmm. But don't and you think at this the end is... Of the day, even, sorry? Don't you no, think it's a little bit of push from those companies? Because this is what I've been seeing for the last decade. And then I know those companies which produce equipment, well, they're there for profit. They want to sell stuff. They sure. want to make money. But they're creating this false myth that, you know, the new camera, the new lens, the, the this new light, you know, gets you somewhere where, you know, you, you're not going to be able to get without a knowledge. And that they just kind of yep. skip that part, right? That. You know, yeah. it, well, it's you know, it's kind of um, it's kind of a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, the companies are at fault, but you know, I also don't actually blame them. Yes, uh, and here's why I don't blame the companies. Mm-hmm. I, I blame the consumers, the photographers. If the photographers wouldn't sucker and buy this stuff, yeah, the companies would stop doing it. But let's take a a, a company that makes light modifiers. So mm-hmm. I am notoriously tough on FJ Westcott. Mm-hmm. I'm tough on them for their pricing, not mm-hmm. for the quality of the gear. So I want to be really clear so that nobody misconstrues what I'm saying. FJ yeah. Westcott makes high-quality gear. Great stuff. But they're a great example of a company, number one, that's overpriced for what you're getting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who is Joe Edelman to say that they should work at a lower profit margin? But my attitude is they should work at a lower profit margin. But mm-hmm. here's the thing. Let's just say modifiers in general. How many modifiers does the average photographer need, right? Yeah. That's a finite number. Yeah. So the problem of it is you've also got a finite number of photographers in the industry. And when I say photographers, I'm speaking very broadly, meaning anyone who is doing lighting and using modifiers. So it doesn't matter if they're professional, doesn't matter if they're an amateur, advanced amateur, but you know, you've got people that, that retire out of business, new people coming in. So you've, you've got mm-hmm. kind of a finite number of photographers which means that they have a finite number of opportunities to sell modifiers. So once this finite number of photographers all have modifiers, now what does FJ Westcott or any other company do? They're not the only bad guys here. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to just pick on them, but yeah, yeah. Uh, what are they supposed to do? Well, they're going to come out with a modifier that's got a YouTuber's name on it, mm-hmm. or they're going to come out with a modifier that's got really cool yellow stripes down the side of it, and it's shaped mm-hmm. a little bit different. Yeah. Okay, even though it does exactly the same thing as the other three modifiers that they have for $50 less, mm-hmm. but they've got to come up with ways to get people to keep buying modifiers. Otherwise, they go out, out of business. business yeah. So if photographers wouldn't buy the damn modifiers, mm-hmm. they wouldn't keep doing it, right? Yeah. So it, it's kind of a cause and effect. So there, I don't entirely blame the companies. Companies, you, you said yourself, companies exist to make a profit. And, and yeah. indeed, I mean... Who starts a company with the idea, well, I don't want to make any money. Yeah, yeah. Of course, they're there to make money. Um, and a company like Westcott or even a company like Profoto. Incredible light. But at that price, come that's, on. That's crazy. Right? Yeah. Who, who needs that? Yeah. Literally 90% of the photographers that are shooting with Profoto today, Profoto today I, and I'm going to take a lot of grief for this, but I stand by it. 90% of the photographers shooting with Profoto are not creating imagery of the quality that requires having thousand plus dollar light heads. Yeah. They're just not. Absolutely. That's just the harsh reality yeah. of it. Yeah. Right. 
But also, um, I, I I think that you know they they targeting because if you look at globally, right? Like if they targeting only North America and in Europe, you know, f- so people can afford it those prices. But even even that. Sure. You know, I, I I deeply believe that most of photographers, especially when they're starting off and they you know getting into this industry, um, they can't afford this stuff. And then you know, I'm actually exactly the same like you. I'm just pushing back. You know that you can create stuff with a very simple um, equipment, and you really don't need mm-hmm. to kind of bury yourself in debt for life. Yep. So you you know can have this. A uh, little bit, I would say, better light, which which has some, you know, fancy rings and bells, but it's not gonna make you creative and all this stuff. I, I, and I'm kind of the same. I think we're thinking exactly the same, the same way. But also, what I would like to add to this, which is also um, interesting, and this is you pointed out really clearly. And again, I'm hundred percent agree with you, with you. And this is also what I'm trying to push on my audience that I think. The companies, I think, the next step in in, in 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 you know in this entire process is education, right? Because mm-hmm. I don't know if you notice this whole thing is kind of pushed on you know photographers, uh, but those companies, I'm not saying they don't do anything, they do, but I think they just do a little bit. But I think if they could create some kind of program that okay, we will t- we'll we'll sell you this gear, but we'll teach you how to become great photographer. And I think that's what's going to draw people to buying specific equipment. But they don't do that. I think at this point, they're getting slowly into this, um, but not exactly, I think, with the full kind of force to help people to achieve their goals and make them better photographers, right? Right. Um, So I think it it is. And it's a a double-edged sword, Rafael. Yes. Because, um, so here, since I was tough on Westcott, let me give Westcott some love now. Okay. (laughs) Um, Westcott is the company that actually does a, great job on education okay for their products anytime they launch a new product they're dropping two three four five videos that show that okay. thing in use that show what you can do with it and yes that you know there's some marketing involved in those videos but there's also you know real life like here we are at a location with this here we are in mm-hmm. a studio with this um and i think that's brilliant and i think especially in today's world that is incredibly smart marketing absolutely one of the challenges that i think we have and i'm i'm going to kind of take this on an even broader scope than what you're looking at mm-hmm. one of the challenges that i think we have today you know when i was starting out in photography if i wanted to you know find a learning resource i went to the library i checked out books that were like bigger than the Bible. They were written in the 1950s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And they were brutal. Yeah. <laughs> they were just brutal. Okay. Um, you know, today we have Google, we have YouTube, we have incredible learning resources, but here's what we don't have today. And it is a problem. Mm-hmm. We have no sense of what's a good learning resource what's a bad learning resource we have no sense of is this video from a manufacturer Mm -hmm. is the information in this video skewed which we can't anticipate that it is right to favor you know what they're selling actually perfect example i i won't name names but i will name the name of the company but i won't name any other names um 
I am a big fan of V-flats. V-flats mm. are very popular. I know Tuvi, who's the gentleman that owns the company, designed them. Awesome stuff. I love Tuvi. I love what he's doing. I get their email newsletter yesterday, and they have a video from a photographer down in Nashville, Tennessee, standing with a model, showing the difference between shooting a model with a medium-sized softbox or uh, reflecting the light into the V-flat. Okay, that's what they're showing. And at the end of the day, basically, the pitch they're making for V-flats is that the V-flats are just easier and it's a softer, broader light. The problem with the video is, number one, the lighting that was created, both by the softbox and by the V-flats, was some of the worst damn lighting I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) Period. The model, I've actually photographed that model at a trade show. So that model's like 5'6". The light was set at about 5.4. So in the softbox, the light's at about 5.4, which means the majority of the light's coming from below her. Mm-hmm. In the V-flat, the light's still at 5.4, which means the majority of the light's coming below her. So there's top shadows on the top of her, the V-neck of her dress. There's top shadows on her nose. Mm-hmm. So if they were trying to make her look like a, a ghoul for Halloween, that might have been a good idea. But mm-hmm. the, the light was poorly placed in the first place. So it's creating a really, really bad example for photographers. And the argument that it makes about the V-flat being a softer, broader light than a medium-sized softbox, well, duh, because it's a bigger, broader surface that the light's coming from. So, like, what did we actually learn from that video? We actually, like, took advantage of people that have no concept of lighting, and we completely sent them in the wrong direction because what we didn't talk about were the benefits of using a softbox. And again, I'm off for V-flats. I love V-flats. And especially if I'm in a hurry, V-flats can be great to not have to set up a softbox or any of that kind of stuff. But I still want that same softbox light. That's where the real value of the V-flat mm-hmm. comes in, is I can create the softbox light with a V-flat if I use the V-flat right. As opposed to saying, well, the V-flat's better, because it's not better. It's better if you have a specific look you're going after. So that's the kind of stuff that I see all the time that, I guess, for me, it drives me nuts in that... So much of the education today becomes a personality game. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I like this YouTuber, or I like that YouTuber, and you get this kind of one perspective. Mm-hmm. And the problem of it is, is that the majority of the YouTubers, i going to get myself in trouble again, uh, they don't have a lot of, a, a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. And they actually come from a very limited knowledge base. And, you know, how serious do you take it when one day... This person is doing a video where they're telling you, well, this is better than this. The next day you watch their video and basically it's like a music video with music playing and you watch three minutes of gimbal shots while this person takes pictures. And then for one minute at the end, they tell you why they like the lens that they shot with. Mm -hmm. And then the next day they're doing a challenge with three other photographers to see who can photograph a model better. So it's like, are these really the people that you want to learn from like what are you learning yeah. in the process so we we have a it was a really long answer i apologize but we have no, 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 a glut of we have a glut of information mm-hmm. it's almost too much information um and i say it's too much only in the sense that there is not a good way or a great way for somebody new that's starting out that's looking for guidance that's looking for reference material to understand what is YouTube entertainment 
Yes. And what is real education? Because the people doing YouTube entertainment, they don't talk about the basics because the basics are boring. They don't get in front of the camera every time they do a video and say, you know what? If you want to learn from what I'm about to do, go pick up your damn camera when, when I'm done. Otherwise, you're not learning it, right? If you think you're going to watch this video and learn something, that's not how you... And that's, this is pure science now. Humans don't learn that way. We don't learn from watching videos. We, we gather some information, which we may or may not remember, but we have not actually learned how to put it to use. Adult human beings learn by doing not reading, not seeing, not watching, by doing. That's science. Don't trust me because I am some guy that you found on YouTube. You can Google that information, right? That's, well, that's like cognitive psychology. Yeah. But, you know, I think we have, well, I think most of us have similar experience when it comes to photography, right? Because I think it's a process. And when when we starting off, like we have completely different concept how photography works. And we see those beautiful images and like, okay, I want to be able to do something like this but nobody's mm -hmm. nobody tells you like okay it's gonna take you let's say 500 photo shoots to learn all this stuff which the photographer had to understand before he was creating that image right so so it's a not like you know you can take i would say online course over the weekend and on monday like you're the pro because <laughs> it doesn't work that way and i see this even like because i teach photography too and i see sometimes people like oh it's so easy for you but i like i've done this for decades and i've been just keep repeating the same process and over and over again and it's also sometimes interesting for me whenever I hear from people like, well, you're just shooting headshots. What's the difficult to shoot headshots? Is it just the really the simple things ever? I'm like, well, let's try it and see it how it's going to work for you, right? Um, so so I 100% agree with you. And I think, you know, we, we, we're thinking kind of the same way that um, those things takes time. But also the practice is the key to success, not, you know, and then I feel exactly the same thing. Like I even after shooting hundreds and hundreds of sessions, um, shooting headshots, I still have lots to learn. And it's not only about the gear, equipment, lighting, whatever. It's the connection with people is the understanding sure. the body language. There's, then when you're actually reaching the point where you're not looking only that what gear do I need? But you starting kind of exploring other things to implement them into photography. So that's something which is actually, you know, what fascinates me um, about photography. But I want to make one more point, which I actually forgot already. Um, yeah, one of the things also what I want to um, mention, and, and, and you said that very clearly, that um, we need to you know, kind of um, do things. And I think a lot of photographers and a lot of people forget about it, right? And I think we need to push that message as much um, as we can. And I'm not saying force people to do things, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a matter of, of putting things in, in practice. But also I want to make it one point about this entertainment, what you said. And this is like the first thing what, what kind of hit me when you have said like, you know, you watch this three minutes video and then you have like one minute that, you know, use that lens and you're going to get those images, right? So how do we know, you know, these people are selling stuff and this is also what kind of irritates me the most, you know, seeing some of those stuff that they showing you those kind of um, 
photoshopped and altered images and then they're going to tell you okay if you're going to just use this equipment this is what i get um i'm going to tell you a little story i'm not going to mention the names because i don't want to <laughs> cause more problems but i ran into the situation um a couple of years ago not i think a little bit more than that um, with one of the really known photographers and so he was promoting one of the brands and he did some photo shoot and he showed those images to the public that you know he got this camera before it was released he did the photo shoot those those are the images and the images were heavily retouched like really not only heavily retouched but i have to say that it was badly retouched as well and people like lost their mind like how amazing those images are and you know like with the retouching you know you see things differently that people who don't retouch right on the daily yep. basis like you see things okay this is overdone this is pushed too hard um so we as a photographers we can kind of spot those things like right on the spot sure and i made a comment that you know great images i try and be kind of politically correct and then nice as much as i can <laughs> but i'm like you know those images they're not images from the camera they retouched they altered and you know the guy just lost like he went after me and like he's actually team of people who are following him i thought they're gonna eat me alive i'm like you know what i'm gonna just step out of the here like i'm not trying to kind of butcher your work because i think they're great images but they're not images straight from the camera. So it's kind of a little bit misleading what you're trying to to, to do here. Um, but again, you know, as I said, as you mentioned, you know, is a personality game. If you are liked sure. and, and if, if you have following with people like trust you 100% and doesn't matter what you say, if this is true or false or, you know, you just keep pushing, pushing sales. Um, they're still going to love you, right? So this is something which I think it's becoming um, a little bit of an issue. Um, but also I just want to say one thing about the learning process because that's something which the stuff what you pointed out are really interesting. So I remember when I started um, getting into photography, um, there was just literally no knowledge to get it in. And, and I remember I went to one of the uh, studios in Calgary and there was this you know, gentleman who was known in Calgary as a wedding photographer. And I asked him like, you know what? I would love to work for you for free. Like, just, just hire me. <laughs> I just want to learn from you. And I'm just like, mm -hmm. sweep the floor, like whatever, whatever you tell me to do. I just want to kind of be around you because I'm just so inspired by, by your work. And he's like, so why do you want to do it? I'm like, well, I want to learn photography and I want to become a photographer. And he threw me out. He's like, get out. Like, I don't want to have nothing to do with you. And I remember like, wow, that's kind of, you know, bummer. And, and I was kind of disappointed and stuff. But nowadays, kind of opposite, right? Like, you know, people kind of want to come, you know, to you and they learn from you. So it's kind of the the, right. the, the, the mentality shift a little bit in today's yeah, I, I think. Well, I think actually it hasn't. It hasn't. So okay. I, I I had a similar experience as a as a child, but I was very fortunate. Okay. Uh, the, the people that I went to see, they did let me hang around. This is mm -hmm. when I was like thirteen years old. They did let me hang around, okay. and they did make me sweep floors. Um, okay. But they did teach me a lot about photography. Okay. They taught me really to how to master darkroom work. Mm -hmm. um, I assisted them with weddings on the weekends, and my okay. pay after a wedding was the best cheesesteak in town. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> um, 
traditionally, and I, you know, I'm not proud of this, but even if you would have met me in my 20s or 30s, uh, I just assumed put a knife in your back before I'd help you yeah. as a photographer. Now, I'll defend myself and say, you know, my intro to photography was photojournalism, which was very competitive. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, but, but still, that, that was just, that's how it was mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, I, the only thing I would, would challenge what you said, because I, I do agree that we do have so many more people that are willing to teach, that in and of itself comes with some problems, but there are still a lot of photographers that I encounter, mm-hmm. uh, really talented photographers. They tend to be the photographers that are doing the really high-end, really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. They're no different than the photographers 20 years ago. Okay. You ask them for their secrets. You ask them for their time. Screw you. Mm-hmm. If you're not putting money in my pocket, I'll be damned if I'm going to give you my secrets. Like, that's it. Yeah. And so, you know, on one hand, I wish it wasn't like that. But on the other hand, like, I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, these are photographers that are making really good money. These are photographers that have busted their butts. They are incredibly talented. And so to a degree, they're, you know, protecting their domain. Um, you know, people ask me a lot. So, you know, why now of all the things that you could be doing? Why, why teaching now? And it's honestly because it fits me now. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a little bit older. I'm slowing down a little bit. I don't want to do the grind as much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when my day comes, I don't get to take all this experience with me. Mm-hmm. So if I can impact people and help people, it's kind of a full circle thing for me. Because mm-hmm. when I was younger, I there were people that owed me nothing but gave me their time. Mm-hmm. And better yet, they were actually great mentors. Um, because if I was lazy... And just said, hey, is this good? Or, you know, hey, what can I do to make this better? Mm-hmm. You know, they were the kind of mentors that would respond to that with another question. You know, is this good? What do you think it's good? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? They'd ask me 30 questions before they'd give me any Sounds information. Good, yeah. But the reason for those 30 questions was to get a sense of what I want. Because they respected the idea that if I was going to make it as a photographer... I can only do what I could do. I can't do what somebody else does because I can't see the world through somebody else's eyes. Yes. I can only see it through my eyes. So everything they taught me, they taught me with context, which is brilliant teaching. And that's a, that's a big part of what I try to do, you know, mm-hmm. at, at this point. Um, and then, of course, kind of along the lines of what we we're talking about with education manufacturers and that, mm-hmm. you know, I run into people routinely. In fact, I got an email yesterday. I shall not name the person, but literally it's like, I want to be just like you. I love what you do. The YouTube stuff, all of it. I've been shooting for three years. I really want to get into teaching. What steps should I take? <laughs> you know, Let's talk in 10 years. Like, look, I'm, I'm sorry because I know that no matter how I answer this, I'm going to sound like a jerk. But like, look, if you've been shooting for three years, the best steps you can take is go shoot for another 30 yeah. And then think about teaching, you know, I, I, and I, I try to remain open-minded in the sense that indeed, even a person who's been shooting for three years could potentially be of great benefit to a person who's only been shooting for one year, Yes, right? Because they've got three times the experience, but in reality, three years in, you haven't learned squat yet. I don't care how many YouTube videos you watched. Yeah. You haven't learned squat yet because you just haven't had enough time to fail. I think we also, 
Go ahead. I think we also live in the kind of era where people want to overnight success, right? They want to yep. see, oh, like, course. you know, things. Yep. They want to learn quickly. They want to just get mm-hmm. successful quickly. And I think photography is a dedication for life. It doesn't matter. Because I think a lot of people don't even see what we had to go through, right? Throughout those mm-hmm. years. How many sacrifices we have to take. How many yep. challenges we had. How many struggles we were dealing with um how it was helping impacting um you know your family there, there, there's so much so they just see the end results but they don't see the struggle and they don't see right. all those years where you had to just i don't know like in your case but like i had really rough years to oh, yeah. you know kind of go it through it and and just you know even make a living out of this right yeah. um but yeah yeah I, i i heard that all the time like oh i want to shoot like you i want to be like you but it's it's a process mm-hmm. it's not so and i one of the things also what i want to add it what you have said that even if you're a great photographer it doesn't mean you're a great teacher or great leader right because oh, for sure. and that's something which <laughs> i sure. think sometimes doesn't go together and then i've run into those yep. situations so i want to take that not we overwhelm with with you know all this knowledge and people who are willing to share uh, but they're also till today I, i deeply think and i interact with some people who they're talented but you know if you would ask them something they would just you know show you the finger or don't, don't wouldn't even respond to you Absolutely. Right? so 100% Absolutely. agree on that yeah i i credit my wife with a lot of my team my wife is a college professor okay so she she has had a major impact on the way that i teach and my approach to teaching mm-hmm. um but yeah i i mean I think we frequently take it for granted with the idea that, oh, somebody has lots of experience, they'd be a great teacher. Those two things do not go together. No, no, absolutely not. Okay, so let's switch the gears. And I want to go back a little bit to gear. I know the gear, it's something that we have kind of similar approach, that it's not Mm -hmm. the main thing. But I just want to ask you, because we're dealing with a lot of equipment lighting cameras bodies Mm -hmm. lenses so what is in your opinion one piece of the gear which kind of glues this whole thing together if you would say ask if someone would ask you like you know what's the one thing which you would say is i'm not saying the most important but something which really have an impact on your work what would that be um wow We're gonna so go. We're gonna I'm go gonna deep. Give now. an answer. I'm purposely gonna give an answer that's gonna be very unsatisfying that's to okay. a lot of people. I'm okay. sorry, um, but I firmly believe that. Um, I think that the best and most important piece of gear mm-hmm. that to use your analogy kind of glues everything together is preparation. It's not something that you buy. It's something mm-hmm. that you do. Okay. Um, I like that actually. I've worked with expensive cameras. I've worked with cheap cameras. I've worked with full frame cameras. I work with micro four thirds cameras now. Um, same with lighting. I've used pro photos. I've used photogenics. I work with primarily Godox strobes, and I'm really migrating most of my work at this point to LEDs because it just makes sense to do it. Um, but. I think the piece that is the glue to all that in, in any situation, whether I'm shooting my fashion and beauty portraits or uh, whether I am uh, doing uh, 
sports or event or anything, it's, it's preparation. Um, new and young photographers, in part because of marketing, mm-hmm. right, put way too much emphasis on cameras and lenses and lights and all that stuff and what it's going to do for you. And not enough emphasis on proper planning mm-hmm. this shot. So they tend to show up for something, whether it be a portrait session or whether it be an event or a sporting event, whatever, and they're ill-prepared. So they've got this great gear, probably the right gear, but they're not prepared to make it all work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you shoot primarily portraits, headshots, beauty shots. You understand, you know, it, I always use the 80-20 analogy because I really believe that that's a fair analogy. 80% of my work has nothing to do with photography. Yes. It's preparation. It's psychology. Mm-hmm. The 20% is the photography stuff, which is, you know, the physics of photography, the, the the science of photography. And that stuff needs to come instinctively. When I have a human being in front of me, I don't care if it's five feet in front of me because I'm shooting a portrait or a beauty shot, or if they're 30 feet away because I'm photographing them in a sporting activity, I need to be paying attention to that subject. For a portrait, I need to be interacting with that subject. I've got to set the tone. For whatever I want out of that picture, I've got to I've got to give that in return to get it back. If I'm head down in my gear and trying to solve gear problems or make gear decisions or futzing with that kind of stuff, I'm not going to get the results mm-hmm. that I want. So, yeah, honestly, for me, the the, the glue is is preparation. 100%. Um, 100% agree with you. If you're going to force me to an actual piece of gear, no, I, I, I would think... say... Probably my lighting modifiers because mm-hmm. those are the things that allow me to give flavor mm-hmm. to my lighting. Yes. But you know what? I really love that answer because I 100% agree with you. This is um, everything what you have said is 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 just pure knowledge, you know, coming from someone who has a lot of experience because – Again, in in order to get the results, you need to prepare. You have to have idea. You need to know how to execute. What's the goal is? And then I remember, um, I have to shift throughout, like you know, transitioning from weddings to um, portrait work because weddings were just going in, observing what is happening, and just like take as many pictures as possible. There's no preparation. You know, whenever we were shooting some kind of like um. Portrait session, that was a little bit of a different story, but generally I had to just, you know, just go in and just take photos of what was happening. And going into portrait, like, was completely different because if your model would just show up, like, okay, so what next, right? Like, you're guessing, you're planning, you look like an, I'm not saying idiot, but you just kind of, like, going around and you're trying to make it work, but you just don't even know what's the goal is. So I, I really love that answer because that's definitely... Um, glues this whole thing together right and the gear it's it's okay so let's kind of i have a following question of what we just were just talk about is so Mm -hmm. in today's um dna in today's era um what in your opinion is the biggest challenge for photographers like what's let's say in your uh career on like you know let's let's look at the last couple years what would be the biggest challenge you 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 try to i would say solve it you're working on it and then you try to somehow overcome that challenge um well 
I mean, there's a lot of challenges that we could highlight. Mm -hmm. You know, gear changes rapidly and quickly. um, And, you know, as much as I kind of downplay the gear talk, look, I'm no different than anybody else. I like toys. Yes. Uh, But at at the end of the day, when we're looking at this from a business perspective, I've also got to look at every toy in terms of what's it going to do for me. Mm -hmm. So for me, if it's, you know, there's so much new stuff coming down the pike. If it's truly going to make a difference in what I do, I want to be aware of it. I want to understand it. I want to be on top of it. Um, I honestly think the biggest challenge that photographers face in today's world Mm -hmm. is how to stand out, Mm -hmm. how to, um, really show off their creativity and their uniqueness. You know, if we look at society, so I'm going to go ahead and get really deep here for a minute. (laughs) Uh, if we, if we look at society as a whole. Um, you know, we go through a lot of, we're going through a lot of changes, uh, especially for somebody, you know, like me who was born at the very bottom end of, you know, the baby boomer generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm proud to say I don't think like a typical baby boomer, but you know, we are in a time where diversity is so much more important and it should be, uh, acceptance, acceptance of, you know, when we look at LBGQT and Mm -hmm. even the use of pronouns in the world today. And, and if you talk to especially younger generation, um, a big part of why the pronouns are so important, a big part of why they will openly advertise, this is what my sexual preference or status is. Mm-hmm. They want to be seen for who they are. And that creates a double-edged sword because on one hand, yes, we want to be seen for being us. In other words, we want to be seen as unique. But you pick up a camera and you start creating. Mm-hmm. And where are you gonna what are you gonna do with your pictures? Where are you gonna show them off? Where are you gonna share them? You're gonna put them on a platform like Instagram. We'll keep it just to Instagram for now. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's other platforms and there's gonna be more. But once you're on Instagram, you've got billions of people doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And you are kind of hit smack in the face really abruptly with the reality. And that reality is that as much as your experience feels unique to you, you feel like you're the only person going through that life. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people going through almost exactly the same experience. Mm -hmm. So that's not to say, like the baby boomer generation would say, hey, so you you want to use this pronoun or you feel this way about your experience? We would have said, suck it up and deal with it. Right? That's how the baby boomer generation was taught to deal with it. I'm not saying that was right. I think the younger generations have the right idea. I really, really do. But when it comes to being creative, the challenge is it's actually very hard mm-hmm. in today's world to separate yourself, to really show your brand of uniqueness. Now, that happens for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, It happens, number one, because creativity, whether it be through cameras, whether it be through video, whether it just be through drawing or words, Mm -hmm. is so much more accessible to the world because of the internet, which is really cool, right? So in in terms of influences, we we see so many more influences. But that also means that you have a lot of people who are lazy. Mm -hmm. Now, lazy is not a nice word. Lazy is a word that people hate. But the fact of the matter is to separate yourself and be truly unique especially when it comes to creativity requires a lot more than a label or a pronoun or anything like that 
it actually requires a lot of hard work. It requires connecting dots, putting ideas together, coming up with things that other people would not have thought of. Because if you think about your own experiences, when you see something and it kind of stops you and you're like, oh my God, that is so cool. Nine times out of 10, it's because you've never seen anything like it before. Yes. In today's world, that's hard to do, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, I, I think that's really the challenge. People want to be unique. They want to be seen for who they are and what's different and unique about them. Mm-hmm. But the internet kind of shows us that we're actually all not that different from each other. And so if we want to be recognized for creativity, which is cool, Mm -hmm. that means, though, that you really have to bust your butt to, you know, be able to come up with things that are truly unique, truly different. Um, Appreciation of creative creativity is also um, it's fleeting. It can run with trends i music's a great example um i just heard a thing on the radio the other day elton john is now the first person to have a top 10 record in six different decades imagine that right i mean generally most people come on you know the scene and they'll have one two maybe three you know hit albums and in 10 years they're kind of like not a has-been, but but they're not what they were right because mm-hmm. their brand of music their brand of creativity it hit at the right time for a generation mm-hmm. and it rose to the top. And it's not to say they're no longer creative or no longer talented, but not as creative, not as talented because there are other people that have come along behind them that fit mm-hmm. generationally at that point. So you've got all those kinds of influences that impact the way people perceive your creativity as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a hard thing. So for me, yeah, it's, it, it's that. Aspect. So do you think that... Um, I'm going to just kind of go a little bit even deeper. That's what you have said. Mm -hmm. So do you think um, creativity is appreciated? Because, well, I'm going to just share my experience. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when it comes to shooting beauty and and headshots, that sometimes what I see that, you know, you're doing something creative, um, something completely off the charts, which probably nobody would pay for that. You know, people would like to see it. Right. Um, and it's what is interesting in this process that, uh, you know, like you get, like, I would say admiration for this. You'd be like, oh my God, this is so cool. This is something new. This is something different. But mm-hmm. it's hard to get the client who like, yeah, I want this, right? Like usually people like right. to see it, but they would never, I would say, put themselves and, and do something for themselves which they would just pay you the money. So, Right. How we See, can that's, kind of that's a different that's a different thing. So is that hard in today's world? Yes, but so here I'm going to take you to task a little bit. Okay. Uh, I talk to this. I talk to photographers about this a lot. Okay. Portrait photographers, even wedding photographers, and and this applies to other genres too. Mm-hmm. But since you know portraiture is sure. my main thing, they make a fatal mistake by thinking that people hire them for their photography. Mm. Um, even a landscape photographer they make a mistake by thinking that people are going to pay for their pictures because it's an amazing picture mm. so we'll start there Yes. Um, if you ever talk to somebody who purchases art mm. who is an art fanatic 
pick a painting that's hanging in their house, wherever you're at, and say, who painted that? Just say, who painted it? They'll tell you who painted it. And then they'll spend the next 15 minutes telling you the story behind that painting and some experience that turned them on to that painter. Mm -hmm. and the key word in that sentence was experience. For photographers, uh, and there's actually tons of marketing information. I always make the joke, I'm some guy on YouTube, don't take my word for it, okay? There's tons of marketing information out there. Um, younger generations today, 20s, 30s, and even 40s, millennials, they are much more interested and they will use their disposable income on experiences Mm -hmm. instead of tangibles. My generation, it was all about the tangibles. Give us the toys. We want to have the coolest house, the coolest car, all this stuff. Now, today, it's about experiences. And again, I would argue, younger generation, they're the smart ones, mm -hmm. right? Because these tangibles, you can't take them with you. Yeah. So, for portrait photographers, and especially for the kind of work that you and I do, the, the mm -hmm. beauty stuff and, and, and all that, um, I do get people that commission me to do those. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying I do that every day of the week. Yeah, no. absolutely. The people that do commission me to do it spend a great deal of money when they do. But what they're paying me for is an experience. Mm -hmm. And we get tunnel vision. And any of you listening, before you think I'm crazy, I'm going to give you an analogy in a minute from the 1980s that will prove just how right I am about what I'm saying. So the photographers that are doing this kind of stuff today successfully, they are selling an experience of which you get a picture from. So a woman will start out the day at a spa, get a massage, take a spa treatment. Then she's going to go to the hair salon, get her hair done, get her makeup done, get her nails done, get a pedicure. She's going to have some wine while she's doing it, you know, eat some chocolate covered strawberries, the whole bit. And then she gets this incredible picture done. And then she's going to get a huge print printed and framed to go up on the wall. The picture, if you're the person in the picture, it's kind of cheesy because anybody that you know that sees that picture, that's not yeah. you. You're in it, but it's not you, right? So why are they doing it? They're paying for the experience. Now, for those of you that think I'm crazy, that people would actually pay for that because they will. It's all in how you package it. Back in the 1980s, in the United States, maybe in Canada, but in the United States, our economy sucked. Our president at the time, Ronald Reagan, he was a great cheerleader. He actually made Americans, and all politics aside, but he made Americans, he was good at making Americans feel proud to be Americans, even though the economy was like tanked. Mm -hmm. And in this really bad economy, where inflation was going crazy, jobless rate was high, Friday and Saturday nights, women would get together with two or three of their friends, and they would go to the local shopping mall. And in the shopping mall, there was this place called Glamour Shots. And they'd go sit in a chair, they'd get their hair and makeup done, and somebody would wrap a bow around them after they sprayed their hair out really big, and they put a soft focus filter on the lens so it was all hazy, and they would take a picture. And these women would go home with like an 8x10 or 11x14 print, which they quickly shoved in a dresser drawer because they didn't have the guts to hang it on the wall. They didn't go for the picture. They went for the, for the experience. It was a night out, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the, the real challenge today that photographers have is thinking that it's all about their photography. Mm -hmm. And it's not. It's about the experience 
that the viewer has. And here's the real challenge, folks. Like, you know, Rafael, you and I could stand shoulder to shoulder in front of a model. Mm -hmm. Even with the same camera and the same lens in our hands. And we'd still come up with two completely different pictures. Absolutely. And we would still have two completely different experiences between us. Mm -hmm. And then when we share that image, wherever, in person or on social media, no other human being will have the exact same experience that we did. So one thing that photographers tend to forget, and, and I understand, I was no different, but we have to realize that once we give our picture to the world, everyone is going to have a completely different experience. Now, if you want to be like me, especially at this point in my career, I, I get a little nerdy, mm -hmm. thanks to my wife. She's a PhD in cognitive psychology. I have learned a lot of little tricks where I can use light and I can use things to kind of influence what a person will experience, but I still can't control what somebody's going to experience when I show my picture. So I have to create for me, and then I have to be willing to let other people have their experience. And as you know, some people will love what I do. Some people will hate what I do. And that's actually okay, right? Because at the end of the day, I'm actually creating selfishly for me. And if I work hard enough and I keep pushing myself, one of the payoffs is other people enjoy it and, and like it. But that business challenge is, it's about building an experience for the client, mm -hmm. that's what people will invest money in. So you hear photographers whining all the time, oh, I can't make money as a photographer. There's so many damn photographers. Fact of the matter is, there's just as many photographers making really, really amazing money today as there was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 yeah, years ago, and 50 change, years ago. Yeah. What we do have today, though, is more people calling themselves photographers. We have more people trying to make money as a photographer. And we have more people with cameras. All of which is amazing. Mm -hmm. But as a result of that, part of the byproduct is, is you have this large category of people that kind of want to be professional photographers and want to pay their bills that way, but they quite, haven't quite figured out yet just how hard that really is. So they're in this middle space, and they're the ones that are usually whining the loudest. Yeah. The people that are making big money, you don't hear them complaining about how hard they work. You don't actually even hear them complaining about the competition because they full well know if somebody calls them up and says, hey, like, I've got this job, and I can only pay 500 bucks, but I'm going to need 30 days of your time, but you'll get tons of exposure. Mm -hmm. They know that that person wasn't their client in the first place, yeah. right? So the fact that somebody else comes in and says, oh, I'll do it for $400, yeah. they're taking their time. They're not even sweating that, mm -hmm. and they're taking that time, and they're going to go out and find a client that's going to pay them $30,000 for a day of their time, right? And, and so that's really the... The challenge. It's, I want to add one more thing. It's about the client. Yeah, and 100% agree with you. And then, you know, even what I do with the headshots, I always found that the experience is the key component just to make, you know, people go through specific experience to, you know, kind of somehow attach themselves to the photo. So I have actually one more question because this is like one of the challenges which I'm kind of, I'm not saying struggling, but I see this constantly that we're living in this kind of world where we want everything to be perfect, right? Um, and that's the kind of goal, um, you know, people kind of pursuing 
this 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 beauty whatever um and i see that w w a lot of clients were coming through my door and, and again it's like a little bit of kind of psychology therapy sometimes because they have to expose themselves for you know photo you know for to take their photos and so how like i'm just gonna i'm just gonna ask you how you actually overcome this kind of like a stigma i would say that you know people just generally i'm not saying everybody but there's a big portion of people who just they don't like themselves right and then they, we as a photographers have to somehow kind of overcome and i don't want to say make them believe but expose their beauty and expose who they are throughout photography so would you mind and share some of this stuff you do to kind of sure. like if you have a client who's like you know i just hate myself and i don't like my photos i have to do this for my company or i whatever um, right. and we have this kind of person we need to somehow convert to like you know what this is what i'm gonna do it's yep. gonna make you happy and it's gonna create right. some positive experience right so full disclosure uh especially since most of the shooting that i do now again is going to be used for some type of teaching purpose mm -hmm. whenever possible i avoid those <laughs> subjects but um i still get them i still deal with them and it, it all comes down to um for me, I think one simple piece of advice. Now, when I say simple piece of advice, the statement is simple. Mm -hmm. It's hard work. But that is that, like, I hear a lot of photographers, before I tell you what it is, I hear a lot of photographers, especially in my age bracket, that will be like, oh, yeah, man, you know, younger kids today, they're just such a pain in the ass because of Instagram and all this. So, like, they've got unrealistic expectations. And so they all think, and it's like, look, you can bitch about it all you want. But here's the thing, right? The world evolves. Things change. People are different. 20-year-olds today are different than 20-year-olds 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. And that's not bad. It's just, that's evolution. That's how it is. So, all of that being said, the one thing that's never changed is the fact that people appreciate sincerity. Mm -hmm. People appreciate, you know, I talked about younger generation today wanting to be seen for who they are. Younger generation in my day wanted to be seen for who we are. We just didn't have pronouns and labels, okay? So none of that's ever changed. Even an introverted person, a person that's really shy, actually likes to talk about themselves if the person asking the questions mm -hmm. is really demonstrating that they're sincere and sincerely interested. So the word is empathy. Mm -hmm. The way you overcome that is empathy. You put yourself in your subject shoes anytime that you're photographing a person for any purpose. Even if you're a wedding photographer shooting a bride for the day, you know, we make jokes about, you know, why would you want to have to deal with a woman on the most insane day of her life, right? You know, that type of thing. It's like, well, okay, but it is the most insane day of her life. She's probably spent the last year, like every waking moment, dreaming about planning this for, moment. not to mention how much money is on the line that day. Like, of course, it's the most insane day of her life. But that also means that Everything you're going to say to that person that day should be through that lens. Mm -hmm. It should be with that understanding, right? Um, a person doesn't think they're that attractive, even though we as photographers may be looking at them and thinking, oh my God, I can't wait to photograph this person, mm -hmm. okay? All right, but that's how they see themselves, and they're entitled to that. So we can't do the, and I, I was guilty of this years ago. I would look at somebody like that and be like, oh, stop being stupid. You're gorgeous, and then move on. Mm -hmm. 
which is actually completely the wrong thing to say, even though I meant it well, mm-hmm. but I dismissed their viewpoint. That did not actually help me. Even though I was trying to be, you know, supportive, it's like, that didn't help me, okay? Um, one of the things that fortunately I've always done because I am naturally curious about people. Even though I started out as a very shy kid, I, I've always been fascinated by people. I ask questions. Too many questions. But I ask lots and lots of questions. I ask questions that aren't always appropriate to ask. Very sincerely. Not out of the blue, meaning if a conversation goes that way, I'll, I'll continue down a path mm-hmm. if I'm curious. But it's never in a judgmental way. It's, it's not, you know, in a salacious kind of way. It's sincerely curious and interesting and always accepting. Uh, if I get an answer from somebody that I'm like, oh, what are you kidding me kind of thing? I'm not going to respond that way. I'm going to ask another question. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, it's honestly the quickest way to make a friend. And if the person that gets in front of your camera is already becoming a friend and they're comfortable with you, it just makes the task so much easier. But indeed, as a younger photographer, I was very guilty of dismissing somebody's neuroses about, you know, am I attractive enough? Do I look good enough? Mm-hmm. You know, I have a crooked smile, all that kind of stuff. Um, I will take the time to educate, you know, um, one of the one of the things I, I tend to do uh, with young women, especially if they're very tentative in that, um, for the minute I meet them, I'm looking at them, figuring out what their best side is, all that kind of stuff. So I know what their answer is going to be, but I'll even say to them, it's like, so just so we know, what's your best side? Which side do you like? Okay. And then, you know, they'll, of course, they'll tell me, nine times out of ten, they'll tell me the side that I already know is to be their best side. And so I'll continue the conversation. I'll say, do you know why you like that side? And they kind of look at me like, well... Mm-hmm. No, nah, I just do. And I'll actually explain the science behind it, okay? Because at that point, what I've done by explaining the science, not that they really care about the science, but by explaining the science, I've just told them that their neuroses about it are completely normal and okay. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's kind of like, it, it's all about, norm, for me, it's all about normalizing. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing normal about choosing to get in front of a camera and have your picture taken, especially if it's with all kind of crazy makeup, or even if it's uh, like a boudoir picture, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, you know, I, I don't care maybe how adventurous you are, that's still not a normal thing to do. You're mm-hmm. choosing to put yourself in a rather vulnerable situation, right? Mm-hmm. So, and especially as a male, especially as a male who is generally considerably older than my subjects, um, you know, over the years, obviously, as I age, the dynamic changes. It's all about respect, but I find that with empathy and sincerity... Mm-hmm. I can develop trust and comfort with my clients. I get more out of them in terms of what they feel comfortable doing and how they feel comfortable responding with expressions mm-hmm. and emotions and things like that. Um, so empathy would be my word. Perfect. Okay, I was planning to chat to you for about an hour and we are hitting the <laughs> second one, which is fantastic because we, it seems like we have a great conversation. So I wanna hit you with the last question. And could you share what would be the biggest highlight of your career being as a photographer? I'm throwing a hard one. Biggest highlight? Uh, um, I'm sure there was many, but the one which kind of like... 
No, we'll see. I mean, honestly, I, I do. I, I approach that a lot like I approach, like, what's your favorite picture? It's kind of like I, mm-hmm. I haven't got there yet. Um, I, I think I would have to split it between two things. Okay. Um, kind of the, the biggest reward was being named a visionary by Olympus. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I used to travel to Philadelphia. I lived about 30 minutes outside of Philadelphia. I used mm-hmm. to travel to Philadelphia when the Nitron School would come to town. And uh, I would watch these photographers that were, you know, ambassadors from Nikon do their presentations. And it'd be like, oh, it'd be so cool someday mm. to be one of them, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, getting tapped to, to represent a camera company was, was a very, very cool thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think probably the neatest photographic experience I ever had, and it did not lead to the most amazing set of pictures. But it was a really, really cool experience. Um, 1984, I believe mm. it was. Um, my son was two years old. Um, my mother uh, was born in Great Britain. She was a World War II baby. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I, at the time, we took my son to England for the first time to meet my relatives. Mm-hmm. And um, I really stupidly thought... Somehow I'm going to get a picture of Princess Diana because, of course, she was the biggest thing in the world at the time. Mm-hmm. So keep in mind, folks, this is like pre-internet days. So mm-hmm. before we left, I found out through a friend at, a paper, at the newspaper that you could call the press office at Buckingham Palace and request an itinerary of what the royals were doing like for the next week. So we arrived. The day that we arrived, we were staying with my aunt, and I got the phone number called. And said, you know, I'm a newspaper photographer from the U.S. I'm here in town for a week. Uh, I've been tasked with trying to get some pictures of the Royals. Can you send me a schedule? They're like, sure. What's the address? Shows up on the doorstep the next morning. Cool. So, um, and it's like this four-page, you know, document of here's where all the Royals are going to be. So two days later, Princess Diana was scheduled to uh, attend the dedication of a new wing of a hospital, a children's wing. And um, at the end of the week they were holding the memorial service for the big statue for Lord Mountbatten. Lord Mountbatten, who had been um, assassinated by the IRA, blown up. Mm-hmm. So this was the first time that all the royals were in London at the same time since this IRA bombing that took place. Oh, wow. So all the newspaper headlines that week were about all the security around the royals. <laughs> Here I am thinking, oh, I'm going to try to get pictures of the royals. <laughs> So um, I get the schedule. It shows where she's going to be, what time. So my, my mother had gone on a trip, too. So she's got my son. My wife and I, we, we get on the, the subway. We go to the hospital. We get out of the subway station. As we walk around the corner of the hospital, I'm thinking American style. Mm-hmm. This is a hospital, an old-school British hospital on grounds. So wrought iron fences with, you know, shrubbery. You can't see past <laughs> the fences. And there's easily 2,000 people lined in the streets where she's just going to drive by to drive into the hospital grounds. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. And it's a cold, wet, rainy British morning. So as we're standing there, kind of in the street, having just come around the corner, and I'm like dumbfounded. Like, there's my whole idea. The shot. Saw a couple newspaper photographers coming up from the other direction. There was a Bobby standing at the gate. And it appeared from a distance, we were half a block away, that these photographers just walked right past the body. No credentials, no nothing. That's what I thought I saw. 
So my wife challenges me. She's like, you should just go for it. So I didn't have all my gear, but I had enough gear. I unpacked everything from the camera bag I had, so I was wearing it. Mm-hmm. And she decided she's going to wait outside. We don't have cell phones or anything at that point. There is no such thing. I go walking down the middle of the street from another direction, and as I'm getting closer, there's two more photographers coming the other way. So I'm like, perfect. I'm going to pace myself so I can walk in with them. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this work. Get to the gate. They turn, go in. I come right in behind them, and the Bobby steps in front of me. He's like, do you have your ticket? And I looked at him. I'm like, ticket? I, I don't have a ticket. And he's like, you can't be here. And I remembered I had the letter from the uh, press office from Buckingham Palace. So I pulled that out of my camera bag. And I'm like, look, I'm here from the United States. I was supposed to get some pictures. This is what they sent me from Buckingham Palace. And it says she's going to be here the whole bit. And the guy looks at it. He's like, well, I can't let you in without a ticket. But you see the guy in the raincoat? He's like some chief somebody or something. Other. He's like, go talk to him. So now I'm inside the gate, walking up the driveway. And I get up to this guy. So I figured, all right, it worked once. So <laughs> I, I pull out the letter. And I was like, the Bobby tells me I need a ticket. I'm from the United States. I don't know about a ticket. I'm, you know, here for a week. I'm supposed to get pictures. And I'm just, I'm talking faster. I'm waving the letter. It's got the Buckingham Palace logo <laughs> on it, you know. And he listens to me like some crazy American. And he looks at me. He's like, you can't stay in here without a ticket. But you see up there where everybody's congregating, like the meat, they had a press pit roped off. Mm-hmm. So you see the woman in the blue raincoat? She's from the, the press office at Buckingham Palace. Go talk to her. So at this point, I'm figuring the gig's up for sure. But she's in the press pit. So I get into the press pit. I go up to this woman. So now I'm figuring, all right, it's all or nothing. So I started all over again. It's like, listen, I'm here from the United States. I'm supposed to get pictures. I contacted the press office. You sent me this letter. I, you know, I'm told now that I need some ticket. I don't know what to do. And the woman looks at me. She looks at the letter. She looks at her watch. She looks down the driveway and she's like, you're not supposed to be here. But she's here, so just don't do anything stupid. And she turns her back <laughs> and she walks away. So I'm in the press area now, and Diana drives up in the car, and she gets out, and I get shots of her going in the building. Oh, wow. And I'm thinking, okay, done. Go back and find my wife who is out outside somewhere. But nobody moves. So it's like, okay, what next? Everybody just hangs around. And I don't know anybody that's there. I don't have proper credentials. Nothing. So I'm just trying to kind of lay low, talk to a couple people. And finally, after about 10 minutes, everybody just puts their gear down right there in the driveway, you know, behind the road, puts their gear down, starts to walk off. And I'm looking around. I'm like, there's easily a million dollars worth of camera gear here, mostly Nikon. It's like, and everybody's just walking away. So it's like, okay, when in Rome, do like the Romans do. So I set my gear down and I go follow the crowd. They take us around the building to a tent and it's all tea and crumpets and biscuits and snacks. Oh my God. And so... So I had the snacks. We all go back out, and she comes out. And typical of what Diana does, they they had uh, two little girls with roses that they were going to present to her. And she took the roses, but then there were people that were invited guests that were lining the driveway, all waving their little Union Jack flags. And she took the roses, and instead of coming back to the car, she went over to the people on the rope line. And at that point... Like, here in the United States, they just shoot everybody. But at that point, like, all the photographers just wiped out the rope line and surrounded her. And they're taking pictures of her, you know, as she's doing this. So I kind of held back because I'm like, I don't know the protocol. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm doing a couple wide-angle shots with the, the camera held up high. 
But I was standing right by her car. And so finally she gets through the crowd and her security people are trying to get her to come back to the car. And as she came back around the car, I basically was standing between her and the door. So like dumbfounded, you know, (laughs) looking straight at her. She had to say, excuse me for, you know, get past her because she's like everything in person that you expect. So that was, I think that was kind of one of the coolest experiences I ever had. I got to meet and photograph lots of famous people. But she was kind of at the top of my list. And the pictures were like, you know, they're nothing amazing. I, I did find the UPI office in Phil, or in, Phil, in London and managed to transmit a couple images. Mm-hmm. Made a couple bucks from doing it. But um, it was just really cool. Number one, to pull it off without winding mm-hmm. up in jail. And, and number two, just, you know, to get to see her yeah. literally face to face was... Well, I have to say that was the highlights of the highlights. That's that's <laughs> that's really amazing story. It was, it was fun. Yeah. So okay, um, I think we have to stop here because I don't want to take more of your time. Yeah. Um, that was you know amazing pleasure speaking to you. I think and I don't know mine. if you agree, but we should do this again. Um, and then absolutely you know, because that was amazing conversation. That was um, yeah. I, I'm I'm. I'm glad we were able to chat. Um, thank you so much again for all your insight or your knowledge and sharing your experiences. That was that was uh, fantastic. Um, I'm going to add all your informations about your website, where people can find you. I'll just basically add it. Um, everything. You, ha- you have way more bigger followers than I do, but I, I think we had a fantastic conversation and I want to share it with, with my audience and then, you know, let people kind of hear to this conversation because I think it was, it was fantastic. So thank my you again. Pleasure, thank Anytime. you again. And um, yeah, we'll be in touch. All right. Take care. Bye now. Bye.